Andy Haynes was a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for the second and third assessment exercises, as well as review editor for the health chapter in the fifth assessment. He was director and dean of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He chaired the scientific advisory panel for the 2013 World Health Organization's World Health Report, the Rockefeller and Lancelot Commissions on Planetary Health, and the European Academy Science Advisory Council. He currently co-chairs the Inter-Academy Partnership Working Group on Climate Change and Health, and is co-chairing the Lancelot Pathfinder Commission on Health and the Zero Carbon Economy. His current research focuses on climate change mitigation, sustainable healthy food systems, and complex urban systems for sustainability. He was awarded the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement in 2022. Sir Andy Haynes, welcome to the One Planet Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So you were one of the first to identify climate change as a serious public health crisis. And during your lifetime, you've seen the future unfolding before your eyes from the biodiversity and species loss, crop failures. I think it's between seven and eight million people dying each year from air pollution. And we'll be seeing more losses due to crop failures in many countries. So since you started, climate change is now being recognized. Planetary health and human health is being closely intertwined. What are some of your more compelling findings and what kind of indications do they give us on how to effectively move forward? Well, it wasn't just down to me as one individual. There are other outstanding people involved, particularly Penny McMichael, who was one of the great thought leaders. And he and I were in communication over 30 years ago about climate change and health. And he wrote a wonderful book, Planetary Overload, as early as 1993. So the late Tony McMichael was certainly a really important figure in this whole climate change and health discussion and evolution of knowledge. Now, in terms of the impacts of climate change on health, when we started 30 years ago, of course, there was very little data. So we made suggestions as to the health outcomes we thought would be affected, like vector-borne diseases, like, as you mentioned, crop failures, water availability, sea level rise, increasing disasters related to climatic extreme events, and obviously the effects of extreme heat as well on vulnerable populations in particular, elderly people, but not just elderly people. So we suggested a whole range of different health impacts that could occur. And I think uh, in general, those ideas have stood the test of time. But of course, as the situation has moved on, we've also become much more preoccupied with action, you know, what kind of action we need to take. So when we started, we were mainly talking about the effects of extreme heat without being able to attribute them to climate change. Because obviously heat waves have occurred throughout history and populations are more or less adapted to different climates. But now I think the science has moved on and we can be much more confident about attributing either some extreme events or trends in extreme heat exposure, for example, to climate change itself, human-induced climate change. So it isn't just natural fluctuations. So that's a change. And as the evidence becomes stronger, of course, it also strengthens the case for climate action, which sadly, as we know at the moment, is not sufficient to really have the desired impact. So yeah, our knowledge has advanced, but the actions that we need to put into practice have not gone at the same speed. And so we're really facing an increasing climate emergency, as you well know. And we don't know quite where it's going to end up, but it could end up between a half, three degrees hotter than pre-industrial times on global average uh, as we reach the end of the century. So uh, this would be truly disastrous, I think, for humanity. So we have to act rapidly, both in terms of adapting to what we can't prevent, but also cutting emissions rapidly, mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. And if we do that, we can both reduce the risks of dangerous climate change, but also it brings near-term benefits. You mentioned air pollution already. And of course, when we burn fossil fuels, we create greenhouse gases, we also create air pollution. And so when we move away from burning fossil fuels, we also reduce one of the major sources of air pollution. So there's a lot of benefits that come, near and longer-term benefits that come from climate action. 
It's astonishing to think of that number, that three-degree change. And it also sounds very, and it's a global average, which I think is important to emphasize because we think, oh, it's, you know, it sounds so little, like yeah, three, three degrees, degrees yes. but it's an average. So that's taking into account a wide variety of numbers and, you know, some Correct. countries really experiencing the brunt of that extremely. Yeah. You know, it's important to remember that that's a global average. So the oceans are cooler, they don't heat up as much as the land does. In some parts of the Earth's surface heat up much more rapidly than others. So the Arctic region, for example, is undergoing particularly profound changes. So, yeah, it's not a uniform thing. And as you say, three degrees, you think, well, no, that's not so much. But the problem is that when you alter the distribution of the temperature, you also increase the probability, the risk of the frequency of very extreme events like uh, you know heat waves and, and floods and droughts and so on. So you're actually shifting the whole climatic pattern when you do that. And as you imply, it does have potentially devastating effects. Indeed. And in the Arctic, I, I didn't even think it would be possible to have fires in the Arctic. And so we're seeing fires in the Arctic. Yeah. <laughs> Again, astonishing. In addition to your work as chairman of the Lancet Commission on Planetary Health, you also work on creating healthy, sustainable cities. We are living in the century of the city, living in a decade of transformation. And so cities really are being recognized now as one of the main drivers of creativity and innovation, as well as consuming 75% of the world's natural resources and accounting for around 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions. What do you think the cities of the future are going to look like in terms of energy, transport, resource and waste management, food, pollution? What are some of those things that you're considering? Yeah. So when we think about cities of the future, we need to think about systems change because you can't just change one thing in isolation. You need to rethink how we can create cities which are both resilient to environmental change. They can withstand environmental shocks better. So for example, uh, reducing the urban heat island, we know that cities are hotter than the surrounding rural areas. And within cities, there's often wide temperature variation depending on whether you're near a park or whether you're in a very built-up area without any natural shading or green space. And that can cause a massive variation, really substantial variation in the temperature exposure. And we know also that some of that's related to inequities. So in many cities, and certainly true in many U.S. cities, the poorer neighborhoods are much less likely to have green space and they're much more likely to suffer exposed to extreme heat. So one issue is redesigning cities to withstand these climatic shocks, reducing the inequities in the prospects for living that many people have in cities and thinking about how to minimize the potential impact of climate change by increasing inequities, which could happen unless we forestall that. So that's one issue. The other is how we recreate the transport systems. Now, in many industrialized countries, of course, we depend very much on the private car, and that leads to congestion, traffic, traffic injuries, deaths. On a global scale, about 1.3 million people a year die of traffic injuries. Uh, I won't call them accidents because I think many of them can actually be, be factored out with appropriate policies. So we need to think about win-win policies, which will make cities more pleasant places to live, reduce their environmental footprint. And one of the approaches, of course, is by creating more opportunities for active travel, safer walking, cycling, but also better public systems. So reducing our dependence on, on a private car and then emphasising more when we do need to use a car, shared ownership for example. So there's a number of things that can be done. But of course, in order to change people's travel patterns, you need to make active travel, public transport, both affordable, safe, and pleasant. And that's, I think, a challenge for urban planners that we need to focus much more on there. And also, this has led to the rise of the concept of the 15-minute city. 
in which basic services are within you know, 15 minutes walking or cycling, whether it be a clinic to see your mm. primary care, the doctor or whoever you want to see, that the local library or whatever, you know, local supermarket. And so that, I think, is certainly an important approach. I know there's been a bit of pushback on that recently. Some people see it as potential infringement of their liberties, but I think that's mistaken. I think actually it could increase people's freedom because it increases their ability to access key services near to their home in a safe and healthy fashion. But of course, it's not happening at the necessary speed. Indeed. And there is a social impact as well as having, you know, living and shopping in your, this is something that was much more common in decades past, actually getting to know who are your local shop owner. So it's all putting money flowing back into the community that we've kind of lost through a lot of globalization. And we need to be able to support if we can get to know even local farmers and things like that. Exactly. And I mean, we know that loneliness is a really pervasive problem in many cities and many communities. And Helping people reconnect with their local neighborhood can bring mental health benefits as well as benefits to environment and physical health through more physical activity. Yeah, and it's also so great to see whether it's the covenant of mayors. You know, it's quite hard to move a whole country, a large country forward. But they say that you know, these large cities can be like living labs. And that's like, oh, it's modeling it. Now we can spread it out through the whole nation. Yeah, it's really important to have, as you say, living examples of change. And so our work is increasingly focusing on implementation of climate action. What actually happens when you try to implement change on the local and maybe even a larger scale? And we know it's not easy. We haven't found that many, not as many as we'd hoped, evaluated actions on climate change mitigation, which can also benefit health. But there are some examples. There are cities which have and are increasingly transforming their city spaces and also their transport systems and so on, making some of the changes that we would like to see happen. And we know that there are changes in behavior occurring as well. Young people, some countries are also changing their dietary preferences, for example, eating more plant-based foods. And that we know is good for the environment and in the long term, good for health as well. So there are some changes happening, but they're not necessarily speed and scale, of course. But nevertheless, they give us hope that change can be made and hopefully will inspire others to follow. And as you say, we need to learn while doing. We can't just sort of sit back and wait for the perfect solution. We have to implement active actions based on the best evidence that we have and then evaluate the impact of those and course correct if we need to do so. And speaking of, you know, planetary health and its link to human health, I mean, in the last century, we've really transformed our agricultural systems. And the big fear before was, you know, could we feed the population on the planet? We were afraid of famines and people, you know, are still dying of malnutrition and famines in some parts of the world. But while in the West, more deaths are being caused by inflammation, diseases created by inflammation or cancers, and that's to do with the evidence. It seems to spell out that's due to infertility in our soils. Could you just unpack some of that to help us understand how important is having fertile, healthy soil? I believe we're losing 0.3% fertility in our soil every year, which seems like another small number, but added up over a century, that's 30% of soil infertility. Sure. The first point is that cancer is complex and it isn't a single disease, multiple diseases, of course, and they have different different causes. And certainly diet is a very important element of that. Uh, we know that uh, people who are obese, for example, overweight, have increased incidence of some types of, of cancer. And we know that air pollution is also a cause of cancer. This contributes to lung cancer. Obviously, smoking is the biggest issue, but air pollution does contribute significantly. So there are multiple different 
factors which can lead to cancer. But as you say, soil health is very important for human health as well. And there's been a really dearth of research on that, an area which there hasn't been enough work on. But we do know that some elements like selenium, for example, need to be an adequate amount in the soil in order to sustain health and reduce the risk of various diseases. And so we do know that depleting soil health will have implications for nutrition and human health. And as you say, soil is being degraded in many parts of the world. And added to that, the other complicating factor is that we're depleting aquifers. So as you know, parts of the world depend on essentially fossil water, water that's been stored for millennia underground. Uh, parts of the world like North Africa, for example, or, or some of the Gulf countries or Northwest India. And in many cases, these uh, water tables are being depleted at a completely unsustainable level. And that, of course, also has implications for the ability to grow crops. Uh, and as you go deeper and deeper, of course, you drag out more and more toxic substances, which can affect people's health. So water is a crucial issue. Soil is a crucial issue. The decline of biodiversity is probably also affecting our health. We don't fully understand, again, many, many complex relationships between biodiversity health and health. And of course, there might be you know, six million species and so on. So it's difficult to quantify all these different complex relationships. But we do know that in principle, more biodiverse environments are more likely to be able to withstand environmental shock and are also likely to help sustain health as well for a variety of different pathways. We also know increasingly that exposure to green space is probably good for people's physical and mental health and beginning to appreciate the benefits of nature exposure to people because people have often been starved, particularly those living in cities, have grown very separated from nature. And uh, rediscovering those linkages can be important for both our physical and mental health. Regenerative agriculture is difficult, you know. There was a reason I can understand why. We made it easier to get rid of weeds, to till the soil. It's quite labor intensive. So, you know, convincing farmers that even though you do get greater crop yields, but you do have to put that extra in work in order to yield. How do we adequately compensate them for making sure that we have enough fertile soil because we can't go on losing soil fertility? Yeah, I, mean, I think there are a number of you know, promising. I mean, I'm not an agricultural scientist, but I do think from my reading of the topic, there are a number of promising approaches which appear to be beneficial, uh, like agroforestry, for example, where you're combining more sustainable regenerative agriculture with also growing trees and so on. So these kind of approaches do seem to be potentially very promising. And in fact, where my colleague, Penny Moragi, is currently working, trying to evaluate the health benefits of agroforestry in parts of Africa, for example. And it's interesting to hear talk about her discussions with local communities who identify a number of potential benefits, both physical and mental, to moving towards a more sustainable regenerative agricultural approach. But as you say, the challenges in, in high-income countries, how do we create the incentives for us to protect nature as well as produce food? And at the moment, of course, they're rewarded for just the volume of food they produce in many cases, not necessarily... Uh, sustaining the quality of land. That situation is changing gradually. We're seeing agricultural policies changing in a number of countries to support the use of regenerative techniques and sustaining biodiversity. So I think the situation is changing gradually, but you do need to ensure that you send the right financial fiscal stimuli signals to farmers and indeed to others if you want to change behavior and you want to change consumption patterns. And as we know, we don't pay the full economic costs of many of our activities. So when we burn fossil fuels, we don't pay the full economic costs of the air pollution or the climate change that's caused. When soils are depleted of natural micronutrients and so on, essential nutrients, we're not paying 
the full cost of all the food that's eating at those soils in an irreversible way. So our financial and fiscal mechanisms don't really reflect the impact of environmental change on the planet. And we're treating these natural systems as a free good, which in the end is bound to lead to and is leading to very damaging effects because ultimately they underpin human civilization. Yes. And thinking about soil, it just blew my mind when I learned that in a teaspoon of soil, it contains more living organisms than there are humans on the planet. So we still are just beginning to understand the mystery of our microbiome. And I can't think, I mean, we won't ever really fully understand all the that how that affects the micronutrients and how it sustains our bodies. But I think we have to take this very seriously to think <laughs> if that's just a teaspoonful, what is that in the rest of our body? And so that's just one element. That's the soil and the water. Of course, you say that it's not just a matter of planetary or human health. When we're thinking about scarcity of water, it's also people say it contributed to the war in Syria because of water shortages and how that affects crops and availability of food. So just help us consider you know, the geopolitical elements of climate change. Well, I mean, there is evidence, of course, that crop yields are related to population movements. And there's Pretty good evidence that the temperature in the growing season, for example, of those countries that, which refugees coming to Europe, that's associated with the number of people applying for asylum. And if that's correct, then that suggests that in the future, those numbers will go up as the temperature in the growing season increases. So it can be a trigger for population movement, also for increasing poverty. One of the things that people often forget is that about 2 billion people around the world essentially depend on subsistence farming, but half a billion subsistence farmers, something of that order. And as the temperature increases, it becomes progressively more difficult to work out in the open without air conditioning and sometimes without shade even. And so as the temperature increases, it will become progressively more and more difficult to work. And that will, and is probably already happening, pushing more people back into poverty and making food unaffordable for those people who depend on growing their own crops. And we've been doing some work recently also on the particularly vulnerable group that are pregnant women's farmers in West Africa and documenting that they are already exposed to really very extreme levels of heat, much more than I would have thought before we did this work. And it's already appears to be having a, an adverse effect on the fetus. So at the end of a shift, you can show that the fetal heart rate increases in proportion to the heat exposure. And we believe that that's having an effect on the well-being of the fetus now, and probably because women are trying to adjust their body temperature, their core body temperature, trying to keep it within physiological range, diverts more blood to the skin, diverts blood away from the placenta growing the fetus. So that's just one example. And so these are women that have to work in order to feed their family. And their work becomes increasingly vulnerable, increasingly precarious. Uh, so you can see how all these factors interact. And sometimes we haven't fully understood all the interactions between them, which could involve, really result in things being multiplying the, the risks, if you like, to feed a vulnerable population. So it is very worrying. At the same time, you know, when population displacement is very important, of course, and we, there is increasing evidence that populations that are or will be displaced as a result of climate change. But remember that the most vulnerable people sometimes can't move because they don't even have the resources to move themselves several hundred miles. So, Sometimes the most vulnerable are kind of trapped in really unacceptable and hazardous uh, situations. But we need to take that into account.
And it's really hard to imagine why. I mean, our population is just growing. As you say, it's, you know, they say, oh, well, increased access to education. It will be a kind of natural birth control. But at what stage do we have to step in? Because we're behaving, I guess, the Earth Overshoot Day was calculated last year as being July 28th, meaning we're using more resources than the Earth can sustain. And it's early and earlier each year. We also need to be clear that most of the drivers for mental change are not coming from poor populations. They're actually coming from the high consumption patterns of industrialized countries. Because the average, say, North American would be responsible for more greenhouse gas emissions per capita, perhaps 100 fold in some cases, say, than some of the poorest populations in, say, parts of Sub Saharan Africa. So it's very important, I think, not to mistakenly kind of blame poor people for the emergency, military emergency that we're facing. At the same time, of course, it's in the end, it's not in the interests of many countries which are seeing very rapid population growth because it's very difficult to provide enough employment, enough education, enough healthcare. And so it can be an exacerbating factor for poverty as well. So it's really important to think about productive strategies that can reduce population growth in those parts of the world where it's happening rapidly. But at the same time, we have to recognize in other parts of the world, population is going to be shrinking pretty quickly as well. Fertility rates of, you know, 1.1, 1.2 in some countries. And so population in those countries, population shrinkage is going to occur. And they will inevitably, they'll need to attract more labor in order to address their caring and economic needs. So the question is how we can balance this situation out in of course, it's in the interest of countries experiencing very high population growth to put in place policies that can help develop the population. And as you say, increase economic growth in those very poor populations, education of women and so on are really important factors in reducing fertility. But at the same time, we mustn't lose the really important point that it's the high consumption that are really driving a lot of the planetary changes that we're seeing. So we need to think about ways of sustaining human health and well-being at much lower environmental footprints than we're seeing at the moment in high-income countries. And that's going to be a big challenge over the coming decades. How can we achieve equitable health and well-being at much lower levels of environment? You mentioned the economic incentives for farmers to engage in regenerative farming. On the topic of economics, in your work on the health benefits of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, you mentioned that cost-benefit analysis is not ideal for assessing these benefits. What alternatives do you think we can use to communicate the substantial health and climate benefits of reducing said greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, thank you. Yes. Well, I, uh, the first thing I should say is I'm not an economist, but obviously I'm very aware that economic arguments are very important in shifting the views of policymakers and so on. And I think there are a number of other potential ways forward. One is to look at what's called the willingness to pay approach, which is really an assessment of people's willingness to pay to reduce the risk of certain adverse health outcomes. And then if you use that approach to value the health benefits of, say, decarbonizing the economy, reducing air pollution, and therefore reducing the millions of deaths a year from air pollution, then you find that in quite a few cases, the economic benefits, if you value those benefits in that way, outweigh the costs of, of the actual policies, the decarbonization policies. It does depend where you are in the world what your levels of background air pollution are, how many, how much fossil fuels are burning. But in some countries, it, it greatly outweighs the effects. In others, it just partly offsets them. We also, I think, have to question the kind of economic model of society that we're in, we have at the moment, because it's very much focused on GDP growth. And we do know that GDP is a pretty poor indicator of human progress. And that, of course, economists have pointed that out for years, but it, it hasn't really stopped the fact that GDP growth is still 
very much the focus, certainly in, in the UK. I mean, most of the discussion is about how can we grow the GDP rather than how can we actually improve the health and well-being of our population and give people a better quality life within these planetary boundaries, which is, in my view, the kind of key challenge that society has. So we need to think about other metrics that will reflect human progress better and also reflect the environmental cost of human progress. And of course, there have been a whole range of those. No single one has been fully accepted, but there are quite a range of, of options like the Human Development Index, for example. And increasingly, UNDP, the United Nations Development Programme, has been slightly changing its approach and using metrics which will better reflect human progress set against environmental impact. And I think that's the way to go. We can debate about what the right measure is, but that seems to me to be the right kind of direction of travel that we need to, to go on. And undoubtedly, these metrics will be refined over time. So I'd like to see decision makers really talking in those terms more and more rather than just focusing on GDP. Of course, economic growth is really important for very poor people. But once you get to high levels of income, then the relationship between human health and well-being and economic growth starts to get weaker. And yes. And so I've been reading research that says that politicians mostly use scientific and research information as a way to back already made political decisions and not as the kernel for developing them. What has been your experience related to that? And do you think the pandemic has changed the way politics are made in terms of science-backed decisions? Well, I'd like to say yes on your latter point. I don't think we've got a very clear indication of that. Of course, many politicians said they were following the science, but of course, it wasn't always clear they were. And of course, the science itself was also uncertain at some points in the pandemic. You know, we had genuine discussions about whether mask wearing was effective or not in changing transmission patterns. I think the evidence is pretty good now. There was legitimate discussion about vaccines at the beginning, but the evidence now is overwhelming that they do prevent the benefits far outweigh disbenefits. So I think it's been a mixed picture. I think it's also raised a lot of disinformation and misinformation on how people get their information, which is often uh, very biased. And sometimes they're getting information from sources which don't have any scientific credibility, but nevertheless are able to be quite effective in undermining people's trust in the information they are receiving from say, the scientific community or other sources. So it's quite a complex picture at the moment. And I think the problem is that many people are not very attuned to how you can assess the veracity of information. Sometimes not easy. Even people who are quite well informed can get you know caught out from time to time. So I think the rise of the kind of fact-checking services is really important, probably giving everyone a Better grounding in science and scientific evidence could be important over time. But at the moment, I would say it's still an open question just how much COVID has really reinforced the position of science forming policy. Now, science will never fully drive policy. Policy will always be driven, I guess, by the political imperatives and probably to some extent ideological beliefs as well. But nevertheless, I think science still has a really important role in by pointing out the consequences, positive and negative, different policies, but also indicating where there are gaps in knowledge, where we need to reduce the, fund more research in order to reduce the uncertainties. I think what we need is a more critical approach to knowledge, but that doesn't mean to say we don't take action. We have to take action in the face of climate change. So we should take the action that we believe there's evidence for, but we should evaluate the impact of those actions to make sure that they're having the desired impact. And it's easy sometimes to forget that there may be trade-offs. You know, we saw this, uh, you know, with the gilet jaune issue in France, that those that action was designed to reduce the dependence on fossil fuels and 
reduce carbon emissions and so on, but it hit the poorest. It hit those more rural populations that have to use their cars and haven't got the money to buy modern electric vehicles and so on. So it's really important to think about the potential unintended adverse consequences of policy before implementing them and really try to ensure that you minimize disruption, minimize the burden or disadvantage, and carry people with you as far as that's possible. I mean, there'll always be debate and disagreement, but it's important to try to carry the majority of the population with the policymakers as far as possible. And that requires, I think, often co-designing policies with the people who've got to implement them rather than just imposing them on people. That often gets a and you've spoken about converting to a plant-based, lower emission diet that could really significantly reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Just put that into perspective. I mean, I don't think the whole planet is ever going to totally convert. No, no. But what would that mean? It would buy us more time. What would it mean in terms of reducing carbon emissions? Well, you know, the food system is responsible for about a quarter of the greenhouse gas emissions. And that's both methane, which comes from livestock, from ruminants, from rice paddies as well, and also because carbon dioxide uh, as well as uh, nitrous oxide. So the food system is responsible for a substantial portion of greenhouse gases, and also it's a major driver of biodiversity loss, forests being cut down in order to, for example, you know, feed cattle or whatever. So we do need to think, and again, we have to be sensitive to different cultural factors and the fact that there are dramatic inequalities in the environmental footprint of different food systems and different dietary patterns. But if we look at high-income countries and we consume a lot of animal products, uh, then th those animal products, particularly those related to ruminant consumption, red meat, for example, are responsible for a substantial proportion of greenhouse gas emissions from the food system. So in those societies, we need to think about moving towards more plant-forward, or so some people call it predominantly plant-based, some people call it food options. But in order to do so, of course, you have to make those attractive people and affordable. And uh, in many cases, these kind of diets could be potentially more affordable than other dietary options. But one of the problems is that sometimes people don't have the ability or time to prepare healthy nutritional food that's also no environmental footprint. So there's a kind of planning process, you know, if you're a very busy person looking after kids, you know, you don't necessarily have time to sit down and plan menus. So there are, you know, constraints about how, about how we can shift people. Having said that, there's no doubt, I think, that shifting people to what some people have called a more planetary health diet, which is much, much more fruit, vegetable, nuts and seeds consumption, lower red meat, modest amounts of dairy food, for example, would benefit their health and would benefit the environment. But of course, if you're a subsistence farmer or if you're a nomadic pastoralist, depending on your livestock, I think nobody's saying, you know, those people have to give up their livelihoods, but they are only a very small proportion of the world's population, those people who sort of nomadic pastoralists. And so and we always have to be sensitive to the diversity of needs and the diversity of abilities to pay, affordability, and the diversity of cultures. A one size fits all is probably not going to work. So each society will have to move towards new dietary patterns that are both nutritious but also culturally acceptable. But what's acceptable, of course, changes over, over time. And, you know, I've seen dramatic changes in the UK diet in recent decades, for example. So these things are not immutable, they're not unchangeable, but one needs to be sensitive to them. And of course, it's not just that a plant-based diet is always sustainable. It's about water management as well, because I'm sure there are plenty of vegans who love their avocados and their almonds. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, there are these water-intensive crops. Exactly. The head of the Water Security Institute said to me, we may come to a time where we have to tell farmers what they can grow because they don't have a water budget for the crops that they yeah. want. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's too simplistic to say every plant-based, as you say, every plant environmentally sustainable, depends where it's grown, what its water requirements are, whether that locality has sufficient breath water or not. So yeah, we do need to become more savvy, but it also, I think, is an important reminder that we should think in the planetary health perspective. You know, we have these nine planetary boundaries that have been proposed as being kind of finite boundaries, which if we can keep within them, humanity can flourish and freshwater availability. Is one of those climate biodiversity, phosphorus, nitrogen loading, and others. Uh, so we need to think kind of holistically and try to develop diets, food choices, but also lifestyles more generally that do fit within those planetary boundaries. And in some cases, that will require quite substantial shifts in our behaviour. But also putting in place policies that make the healthy and sustainable choice easier and more affordable. Talking about shifts in our behavior, I've noticed that people can be overwhelmed with all of the environmental factors that can possibly harm our health, from indoor air pollution to chemical exposure and contaminated water. What do you think are some other changeable strategies, such as the example you gave of adopting a plant-based diet, do you think individuals can take on to protect themselves from such harms? Yeah, it is challenging to keep up with the changing kind of research evidence, isn't it? And um, even those of us working in the field, you know, we have to keep up all the time. So I can imagine for the public, it is really difficult. And you also sometimes get mixed messages as well. I think in terms of what individuals can, obviously, diet's really important. Where you get your home energy from, you know, do you buy from a renewable energy company? And increasingly, of course, renewable energy is becoming cheaper. It used to be much more expensive, but now it's much more competitive depending on where you are in the world. Of course, I think housing efficiency, insulation and so on, particularly in a country like the UK, where we have a lot of older obsolete buildings, but often not very well insulated. So we're wasting a lot of energy. But some of those things can be done by individuals, but some of them require government action to make it easier. And it's really getting the right balance between the two. You can't put all the emphasis on individual behavior change because it's not going to happen. You have to have signals from government, which clearly move people in that direction. So Guidelines can play a role. They don't change behavior in themselves, but they can help to frame the situation. And then making some of the healthy and sustainable options safer. And so, for example, cycling is quite scary in many cities. You're intermingling with motor vehicles. So learning the lessons of cities that have really scaled up their cycling and walking by making it safer and pleasanter are really important. And of course, there'll be a pushback from private car lobby and so on. So we're on both sides of the fence. But you know, in the end, you've got to restore the balance, I think. And at the moment, in many cities, we have too much dependence on, on the public. So there's some things that people can do with their food, with their energy, their housing. We shouldn't put it all at the individuals. We also need government action. And that can be at the national government level. It can also be at the local government. There are things that local governments can do, even if they can't change the tax system or necessarily the regulatory system. But they can, for example, make local transport decisions that could be helpful. Uh, they can refurbish public housing to make sure that it's more energy efficient. They can also protect uh, green space. So quite a lot of things that local governments can do, and every level has its part to play. I completely agree that we must not only put pressure on individuals to make this change. So when we are focusing on these regulations and guidelines, what ways can we ensure that these efforts to address planetary health are equitable and anchored in social justice, particularly for marginalized communities that may be disproportionately affected by climate change and the subsequent health effects? Well, I think one issue that we have to face is that it's really important to consult those communities. I mean, you can't necessarily consult everyone in the community, but it's really important to ensure that there's some mechanism for a consultation for marginalized communities when designing and implementing policies of different kinds. So it's really important to engage them and discuss how they can work with the local government, say, 
to increase their resilience to say, extreme weather events. It's very important in things like heat wave early warning systems. You know, it's all very well issuing a warning of extreme heat, but if nobody responds to it, or the most vulnerable people don't hear it, or they don't have access to the internet. So thinking about the policy and how can that policy have maximum benefit for some of the most vulnerable people is really important when you're developing and implementing your plans to both adapt to and to mitigate climate change. And what we don't want is policies that will increase energy poverty, for example. So if in those countries where renewables are more expensive, you know, force people more to go towards renewables without giving them some kind of financial support, then that will drive more people into energy poverty. And then they'll have to use cheap solid fuels like this or whatever it is that's available to them. So one needs to think about these issues when you're putting in place policies. And although no politician likes the word tax, you know, we do need to think about how to reflect the true costs of our activities and our pricing system. And so taxes, of course, they always talk about them, but depending on how you implement them, they can lead to a fairer society. You know, we do need taxes in order to promote equity. A carbon tax, for example, could be recycled to reduce inequalities. There are examples of where carbon taxes have been reused and recycled by governments to increase access to healthcare facilities. And we know from work of innovative NGOs like Health in Harmony that when they ask people in parts of Indonesia, why are you deforesting? People said, well, we need the money to sell the timber in order to get healthcare. And so they showed that by providing affordable healthcare to these populations, there was a dramatic reduction in the deforestation that was occurring. So I think there's all sorts of ways in which we can tailor policies to address the needs of marginalized population and make changes that we want to see more likely to occur and progressive in the sense that they actually bring people up in poverty and reduce the inequities that are unfortunately so pervasive. As I attend college in Claremont, California, I cannot help but be reminded of the urgent need for environmental change. This becomes increasingly more true when you look at areas such as the Inland Empire that are disproportionately affected by climate change health effects. The Inland Empire borders the county that I'm in, and it is an area that is majority people of color. It is greatly affected by air pollution, particularly because of the abundance of warehouses that have been put into the community. The area has ranked the worst in the nation for air quality multiple times, and this is having detrimental effects on the community's health. Asthma, cancer, and respiratory illnesses are all too common. This is an issue that is also relevant in my hometown of New York City, where communities of color and low-income individuals are also bearing the burden of environmental pollution more than others. Often, the health problems that arise from harmful exposures related to climate change occur over time rather than instantaneously. Because of this, we have been slow to recognize many of the human health impacts of climate change. This lack of knowledge that the public has is reflected in the lack of policy that is in place to protect such communities. It is frustrating to see how slowly we have recognized and acted on these issues, but the research being done by experts like Sir Andrew Haynes gives me hope that policy will be increasingly informed by science. Research on environmental change in relation to public health is a necessary part of mitigating the impacts of climate change on human and non-human life alike. If we do not know to what extent there is a problem, it becomes increasingly more difficult to make sustainable lasting changes. We cannot afford to wait any longer. The health and well-being of our communities depend on it. Now, back to the interview. 
really a sensitively implemented carbon tax that takes into account the different players, whether it's the producers or the consumers of those products, or is taxing the transport that brings it to your doorstep from the other side of the world. We always try to put a price on things. It doesn't take in the full value of nature. It's like if we don't have a natural world, you know, we have nothing. Yeah. There's a big debate about just how much you can put a value on these things. And some people say we shouldn't try to put an actual value because it's above that. And I can understand that view. If you believe that nature is sacred, then you know putting money in it could be offensive and it doesn't make any sense. On the other hand, if we don't put any money in it at all, it's just treated as a free gift. And that's what's happening at the moment. You know that um, In a sense, you could argue nature is being plundered because we don't put any value on it. So it's a difficult argument. On balance, I think we have to put some kind of financial value because we live in a society which does put value on things. And if we don't do so, then it will just be used profligately and it won't be conserved as it should be. So we do need to have regulations and we do need to have proper ways of valuing nature. Having said that, we'll never be able to value it perfectly, but maybe some kind of imperfect valuation is better than nothing at all if it drives policy in the right direction. And I'm not saying it should be the only kind of policy, but maybe I think it has a role as part of a kind of spectrum of different policy options. Yes. And also to properly tax those. In the fossil fuel industry, I find it incredible that it's producing record profits. Even today, when we know it's actually costing more, renewables are going right down, and yet fossil fuel industry seems to be subsidized, even though it's made vast profits. I also want to congratulate you on receiving last year the Tyler Prize, widely considered as the Nobel Prize for the Environment. What does receiving this kind of recognition help you continue and how does it help you expand your work? Well, obviously, you know, it's a great honor and a privilege. I mean, I have sort of mixed feelings about it because I think that on the one hand, we haven't made the progress that we need to make. And so there's always that bittersweet kind of feeling that, you know, there's so much more we need to do. But having said that, obviously, I'm grateful and I'm grateful for the recognition of the kind of work. But it isn't just me, of course, it's a growing group of people, particularly my younger early career colleagues that are coming up into this field. And I think they really will make an increasing difference in years to come. So, yeah, I very much regard it in that light, really, that it is increasingly a team effort. And if it draws some attention onto the kind of work that we do, then that's a good thing. But at the same time, one shouldn't put too much reliance on single individuals. You know, we have to work together as a community as a research community, as an implementing community, and so on, in order to really stimulate and ensure that we get the sort of scope and scale of change that we all want to see. So certainly it's not a reason for me to sort of let up. It's, in a sense, it just kind of renews my energy to continue with this work, and particularly for working with my younger colleagues all around the world, supporting some of the wonderful work that they're increasingly doing. And so as you think about the future and the wonderful collaborators and teachers that you've had, And what gives you reasons for hope? You know, maybe you could share with us about the beauty and wonder of the natural world. Yeah, people, sometimes they ask me if I'm optimistic and sometimes they ask me if I've got hope. And I think there is a difference between the two. I mean, optimism is the kind of feeling that the probability is it's all going to be fine. And hope is being that, yeah, there's still a good, you know, chance that things could work out well. And I think I'm more of the kind of hope than the optimist. You know, we have so much knowledge within our grasp. And we have so much technology that we could use, but it isn't just about technology. It's also about values. What kind of values, what kind of society we want to live in, what kind of values we have as collectively, as a community, as a society. But that's, of course, a much more contested field. And I do think that we do need to really raise that as an issue in society for social. What kind of society do we want to live in and what kind do we want for the future for ourselves, but also for those that will come after us? And I think that's a crucial debate that we should be having now. I do see that debate beginning and that does give me cause for hope. 
I'm involved with quite a wide range of different activities, whether it be in cities, we see them some city-level decision makers really making very exciting commitments. We do see a few countries really leading the way with some of the work that they're doing. Not enough countries, but there are some. There are many NGOs. There are many innovative businesses. There are initiatives like cooperatives where you can actually buy a share in a wind farm. Then you actually can benefit from the electricity generated from it. And ideally, I'd like to see more communities being able to own their own energy supplies, for example. You know, there are lots of volunteers running food banks, which shouldn't be necessary, but in fact, sadly are. And that, of course, has to give one hope because there are a lot of people out there who do think more broadly and are compassionate and caring people and are thinking about not just today, but also tomorrow. So I'm given a great deal of hope by the kind of people I meet, the people I work with. We have to hope that those, that vision is also translated into political reality. And I think that's where it becomes more difficult because politicians are driven by the short-term imperative of being re-elected. And sometimes you have to take decisions which may not be vastly popular. Initially, they may have become more popular. And we know that probably younger people perhaps are prepared to accept policies that middle-aged older people may not be prepared to accept and so on. So there are differences within society, sometimes quite deep divisions which need to be addressed and overcome. So I think it's a combination really of seeing some of the excellent, excellent people that I work with around the world, some of the really exciting initiatives that are taking place, the speed of technological change. But I think this big issue is, you know, what, what are the values that drive our society? Uh, what kind of a world, what kind of a future do we want? And I'd like to see much more of a debate, public discussion about that. Well, thank you, Sir Andy Haynes, for making the arguments clear, sharing your insights, values, dedication and commitment to caring not just about this planet, but for working tirelessly towards safeguarding our health and well-being. Everything is connected and what we do to the world comes back to affect us. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thank you very much. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Alexa Potter with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associative interview producer on this episode was Alexa Potter. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.